We're going to continue this morning looking and working our way through the book of Romans. So I'm going to turn to, to Romans, Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and we'll read from verse 1. And here Paul says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he's done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then to the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Let's come and pray. Father, we just ask again that, that you'll make your word open to us that you'll give us understanding that comes from you that's born of your spirit and that you'll give us courage and humility to apply this word to ourselves, not to look upon it as a word for someone else, but to see it as a word that you have for us. Lord, may we take it, hear it, and obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I doubt very much if there's many Christians in the history of the church who have had more stories told about him or involving him than, than Spurgeon. So here's another one. A good friend of his and fellow pastor, Dr. Newman Hall, wrote a book entitled, Come to Jesus. Another preacher wrote an article in which he ridiculed both Hall 
and his book. Now, Hall bore this patiently for some time, but this article began to gain popularity and more and more people began to join in. And so finally, Hall decided that he had had enough. He sat down and he wrote a letter of protest in reply. And being an extremely clever man, he outdid his attacker in mockery, in the clever put-down. But before posting this letter, he took it to his friend Spurgeon to ask his opinion on it. Spurgeon read it carefully and then handed it back, agreeing that it was an excellent letter and that its intended target deserved it all. But he then added, it just lacks one thing. Underneath your signature, you ought to add the words, author of Come to Jesus. These two godly men looked at each other for just a few moments, then without another word, Hall tore the letter to shreds. That's an illustration that's got a number of different possible applications, but certainly one of them relates to hypocrisy, to the dangers of hypocrisy, to slipping into hypocrisy. But, you know, let's be clear here. Hypocrisy is something that, that to one degree or another, all of us are guilty of at various points in our life. None of us, not one of us, 100% live up even to our own standards. However, there is, though, a big difference between an occasional lapse into hypocrisy and us reaching the point where basically we are living as hypocrites, where the gap between what we say and the life that we live has reached almost Grand Canyon proportions. In what sense, though, is, is this relevant to the passage that we're looking at here? Well, the last time we looked together at, at the book of Romans, the truth we were confronted by is that God is angry at man's sin. That sin arouses the anger, arouses the wrath of a holy, totally, morally pure God and leaves us as men and women facing his judgment. Here, though, you see, Paul picks up the pace. <clears throat> For the sin that's catalogued in, in that passage, you looked at last, Romans 1, 18 to 32, was at Paul's time, when Romans was written, the kind of behavior that many would have seen as wrong, immoral, even sinful. I mean, the Jews, they were renowned for their morality, but there were also Gentiles around, Gentiles like the famous Seneca, philosophers who were equally famed for their high morals. F.F. F. Bruce says of him, not only did Seneca exalt the great moral virtues, he exposed hypocrisy. He preached the equality of all human beings. He acknowledged the pervasive character of evil. He practiced daily self-examination. He ridiculed vulgar idolatry. He assumed the role of a moral guide. So here you see, Paul turns to these people. He turns to those who we might define as good living people. Those moral, upright people. Citizens, both Jew and Gentile. And here, he demonstrates to them that they too are sinners and under the judgment of God. Now we're going to unpack 
Paul's argument here this morning. But before I do that, I want to just make one thing very clear. That is, what we're going to look at isn't just an academic exercise. Looking at at people, looking at attitudes that were maybe around in the first century but have very little bearing on life today. Not much to say to us. That is just not so. The moral equivalents to what we are looking at, the up-to-date examples, are there very much around today, alive and kicking. For we have good living people around just now, just like in Paul's day. We've got people who condemn the evil in society, people who seek with every fiber of their being to live good lives and who would find it very difficult to believe that their life would not earn them a place in heaven. And equally today, we've got religious people. We've got people who go to church, people who read their Bible, people who pray, people who give, people who even, yes, would agree that there is such a thing as sin and who might even be prepared to admit in theory that they are sinners. However, their attitudes, the way they live, the way they behave, sends out a different signal that whatever they see, what they define as their sin being, they certainly do not see it in the same light as the sin that's out there in the world around. You see, that's the kind of double thinking. That's the kind of hypocrisy that so quickly develops into one of the ugliest sins around, the sin of spiritual pride. Spiritual pride, and it did not die out with the Jews in the first century. It's still around today. And it's these people that here Paul takes on. Good living, moral people, righteous, religious, respectable people. It's these people that here Paul takes on and demonstrates to them that they too are sinners and under the judgment of God. And the way in which Paul takes this on, and this in fact is is actually the style of much of the book of Romans, and if you understand this, it it kind of helps you to to follow Paul's argument. The way that he did this was in a writing style that was very much in use at at his particular time. And it's where you, you set up your opponent's position You put yourself in their place and then you proceed to answer their questions and to demolish their arguments. Let's follow his argument. And the first point that that Paul makes is that all are sinners. That's his first point. All are sinners. And the way that that Paul makes this point is by exposing the tendency of the self-righteous to be critical of everybody but themselves. Their tendency to see sin in the world around, to see sin maybe in their fellow believers, and to condemn what we see loudly and strongly and harshly, to be very stern regarding the sin in others' lives, and yet at the same time, to be seemingly almost unaware and surprisingly lenient in our attitude towards any sin in our own lives. Have you ever come across anybody like that? 
Somebody who seems to have eyes like a hawk when it comes to seeing shortcomings and sin in the lives of others, but who seems remarkably short-sighted when it comes to looking at their own lives. Now, I have to say, somebody who takes a hard line towards sin across the board, you know what? I've got a kind of admiration in some sense there because at least there's consistency there. They're hard on themselves as they're hard on others. And I've known people like that. They haven't got the balance right. They haven't got that balance between holiness and love. They, they need an injection of, of mercy and, and compassion. They do. But you know, at least they are consistent. But someone who is harsh towards the sin of others and is lenient towards their own. That is hypocrisy. There is no other word for it. Hypocrisy. Paul's argument here, though, is that when we do this, when we pass judgment on other people, we then show ourselves to be morally aware. We demonstrate by doing this that we've got the critical faculties to be able to distinguish between right and wrong. And so because of this, we condemn ourselves. Verse 1, you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, what Paul's saying here is not necessarily that people who condemn sexual immorality are themselves guilty of sexual immorality. That those who condemn gossip are themselves gossip. That those who condemn greed are themselves greedy, although I have to say it has been known. All of those things have been known. But no, what Paul is saying here is that we all commit sin. That is, we all do the same kind of things. Things that are equally serious in God's eyes, in the sense that we are all guilty because we all fall short of God's perfection, because we all fall short of his perfect holiness that he created us with the capacity to share in. We have all sinned. We have all rebelled against God. We have turned from his ways and his will for our life. We are all sinners by nature. Now, as Paul here argues with the morally self-righteous, those who feel that they are good living and that that in itself should be enough for God, and as he argues with the hypocrisy of, of the religious also, I think it's more than possible that he maybe imagined his old self in the dock. That the person he was actually arguing with here was the person that he used to be. If you see as a Pharisee, part of that strictest party of the Jews, as far as outward standards and outward behavior had been concerned, Paul had been virtually blameless. He'd been as good living religious man as any man could possibly be. But then you see, he'd come to Jesus. He'd been brought to his knees before Jesus Christ. He'd been brought to the place of repentance, brought to see that his righteousness could never put him right with God, that he had to put his trust in Jesus Christ, in his holy, perfect righteousness, in the fact that he, the one who was both God and man, that he offered 
that perfect righteousness possessed by him alone on the cross as the payment for all our sin and all our unrighteousness. You see, Paul did that. That's what happened. God's Holy Spirit came into his life and opened his his eyes to see that despite all his good living, despite all his religion, despite all his outward show and all the appearance that he projected, yet still that within, that in his heart, there was pride. There was unforgiveness. There was anger and bitterness. There were all sorts of things in there that he could maybe hide from men, but that he could never hide from the all-seeing eyes of God. Paul knew that all are sinners because Paul's eyes had been opened to see the reality of his own heart. That's the first point then in Paul's argument with the good living, with the moral with the religious, that all are sinners. The next point in his argument we're going to focus in on is that all face judgment. Now, there are things that that are made clear here about this judgment, both in this passage and elsewhere in the Bible. First of all, that the foundation stone in judgment is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation stone. Verse 16, this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Jesus Christ is then the executor of judgment. And the starting point of judgment is how have we responded to God's offer of salvation through him? How have we responded to that offer? For we were lost in sin. Separate from God because of our choice to sin. And then God in Christ willingly, because of his love, his great love for us, came to this earth. And on the cross, as God and man, he stood there in my place, in your place. As God, he paid the price we could never pay. That holy, sinless life offered up to pay the price of our sin. And so now, We have got a choice to make in this life. We've got a choice. Are we going to accept the salvation, the life, the relationship with him that God offers freely to us now? Or are we going to choose to reject that offer? And you see, that decision affects not just our destiny in this life, but our eternal destiny. For the starting point of God's judgment is... What has our response been to Jesus Christ in this life? If we've chosen Jesus, if we've chosen God, if we've chosen grace, if we've chosen faith, then we will go to heaven. We're there, we will know God, know Jesus, know his love, know life in all its fullness forevermore. But if our choice in life has been to reject God's offer, of Jesus. If we have no time for God, no time for his love, then you see in eternity God is going to honor that choice that we have made. For his judgment will be to send us out of his presence, to send us away from all that is loving and all that is good for all eternity. Jesus Christ then 
is the foundation. He is the bedrock of God's judgment. Our salvation, God's judgment, heaven and hell rests upon that basis of how we have responded to Jesus. And everything else that it says in this passage here about good works and evil works and about Jews and Gentiles, everything else has to be set in this context, has to be seen in this context. Because the only Jew and the only Gentile that will get into heaven is the Jew or Gentile who has placed their faith in Jesus and his righteousness. But, you know, there are those who might perhaps want to say, but, but doesn't it say here, though, for example, in verse 7 and 8, to those who persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. But you see, what this is speaking about isn't the basis of salvation, isn't the foundation on which judgment is exercised, because that is always faith. Faith in the grace of God, faith in the undeserved love of God offered to us freely in Jesus. Whether we go to heaven or hell is ultimately, wholly, and completely all about faith. However, the Bible, I believe, also makes it clear that there will be degrees of reward in heaven and that there will be degrees of punishment in hell. And that, because God is a just God. The principle, you see, of judgment, once that bedrock of salvation has been established by Jesus, once we have come to Jesus through faith or closed the door of salvation by a rejection of him, having done that, having got that sorted, then the principle of judgment that determines the degree of reward or punishment will then be our deeds. And if some of you want biblical backup for that idea of there being degrees of punishment for a start, then how about Revelation 20, verse 13? Each person was judged according to what he had done. And the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty-two to the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Also his words in his parable of the end times in Luke 12, 47 and 48, the servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not know or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the servant who does not know and does deserving punishment and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. So you see, get rid of brass tacks. Do I believe that Adolf Hitler and the ordinary man or woman who perhaps by human standards has lived a good life, do I believe that they will both receive the same punishment? I have to say, no, I don't. I believe that both because they've chosen to reject God's offer of grace in Christ, both will go to hell. But the degree of their punishment will differ. I mean, that's righteousness. That's fairness. That's justice. 
And that, I believe, is what God is all about. And as for degrees of reward in heaven, well, the Bible teaches that believers will be judged in heaven. It teaches that, but that this will not be a judgment of condemnation. It won't be. Romans 8, 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rather, this will be a judgment that's concerned with the degrees of reward. Just one or two passages that validate, I believe, what I'm saying here. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the deeds done while in the body, whether good or bad. And again, there's the teaching of Jesus in the parables this time, the parable of the minas in Luke 19. For the one who made ten minas more was told, take charge of ten cities. The one who made five minas was told, take charge of five cities. There are one or two things here, though, that I think we need to make clear about this whole concept of reward. That is, just see verse 17, what it says. To those who persistence, who by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, you see, glory is about knowing God. Honor is about doing that which wins God's approval. And immortality is about being with God forevermore. Now, what I believe this tells us is that what is key to any reward is motive. That is, if our motive in the good that we do is God, if our motive is to love him, to live to please him, to honor him, then the good that we do will win us a reward. If, though, our focus, maybe in a subtle and devious way, is on ourselves, if we're maybe thinking about how this will make us look in the eyes of other people, or if we think, you know, God's going to like this and this will be good for me, if this is what is motivating us, then I fear that we're wasting our time. And, and verse 16 underlines that it's motive that counts, that what really matters, that it's not so much what we do, but what's going in our hearts and our minds as we do it. It underlines it. It says, this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. And something else we maybe need to, to make clear about this whole concept, whole idea of reward, which ties in with the importance of motive, is that I believe the, the, the reward we'll receive in heaven won't be about status, won't be about power or position. Rather, any reward that we will receive will be in line with the deeds we've done. So if our desire has been to get to know God better, if our desire has been to love him more or to serve him more faithfully, then you see in heaven our capacity to do all of these things will be increased. See what it says in verse 6. God will give to each person according, that is in line with, what he has done. 
But, but let's be clear. There's going to be no dissatisfaction, no unhappiness in heaven. I don't believe there will be. Rather, the way that we've lived our life, that will determine our capacity for love, for joy, and for service. So some may have a greater capacity, but all will be filled with love and joy and peace. Just one other thing about judgment. And that is what it says here, particularly about the judgment of the Gentiles. Maybe seems to suggest that, that people will be judged according to the light that they've received there, in verse 12 to 15. But it says, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And it goes on, indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witnesses and their, uh, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Now, this isn't saying, I don't believe, that some Gentiles, some Christians will be saved by their good deeds. I don't think it's saying that. I don't believe it is because this section is introduced with the statement. This is what kind of leads into it, that all who sin, either Jew or Gentile, apart from the law or under the law, in the same way come under God's judgment. So I don't believe it's saying that. Now what this is saying is that some people outside of faith, with no biblical background, no biblical teaching, that they show by the way that they live their lives, they show what is true for all people. They show that God has written his law on our hearts. That is that he has given us a conscience, a conscience. He's given us an awareness of right and wrong. Now, this is limited and it's defective because of our sin, but it is there. And this means not that we escape judgment, rather it renders us responsible for what we do because we know when we do wrong and therefore are accountable to God in his judgment. Those who know the law, those who know the demands of God's holiness, the Jews say they are more accountable, but all are accountable. Which perhaps raises another question, and that is, what about those who have never heard the gospel? What about those who've never had an opportunity to respond to the gospel? Never had that. How will God judge them? Well, my conviction remains that no one will be saved by good deeds. Nobody. No matter how exemplary their lives may be, no matter how outstanding their deeds might be, no matter how great the sacrifices that they might have made, no one will be saved in this way because all our good deeds, even the finest, are tainted by sin. But Old Testament believing Jews, men like Abraham, Moses, David, etc., they were saved because they believed in Christ 
without seeing Christ. In the sense that they trusted, not in their own righteousness, not in their own goodness to save them, but rather they trusted ultimately in God alone, in his righteousness, his goodness, his mercy. So might there be those who trust in Christ in the sense of putting their trust in the goodness and mercy and grace of God. Might there be those who do that without yet hearing of Christ? Might there be? I can't say categorically. But what I do know is that it is our responsibility to take the gospel of Christ to them, that they might hear and might respond. So all are sinners. All face judgment. Let me finish briefly with one final point. All can find mercy. All. But it's not the way some try to find mercy. It's not the way Paul outlines here in verse 4. It's not by presuming on the goodness and kindness of God. It's not by saying, oh, well, you know, God is love, so he's bound to forgive me. He's bound to accept everybody. John Stott, he says here, this kind of manipulative theologizing is to show contempt for God, not honor. It is not faith. It is presumption. For God's kindness should lead us towards repentance, verse 4b. That is its goal. It is intended to give us space in which to repent, not to give us an excuse for sinning. You see, God is loving. God is so loving that he sent Jesus. He sent his son, God in the flesh, to die on the cross for us. And Jesus came willingly. Such is his love, God's love for us. And God is patient. He is. God holds back the day of final judgment and he does it to give more and more the opportunity to repent. But one day, that day is going to be over. One day, either at our death or at Christ's return, we are going to have to face that judgment day of God. So the question is, how are you going to face God on that day? Trusting in your own righteousness or trusting in God's gift of righteousness in Jesus? I want you to say, today is the day to get your life right with God. Today is the day to prepare and make sure that you are prepared for judgment. Today is the day, totally and wholly and completely, to put your faith in the grace of God, the undeserved gift of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's come and pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the greatness of your love. We thank you that your grace is for all. That you want all of us today to face up to our sin, but you want all of us to come to you and experience your grace. It is for all. 
Lord, may we make it our all in all by our faith this day. In Jesus' name, amen.